Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Safety Doc Show. You'll notice... It was the podcast, but I have changed it officially to show. So from now on, we will be enjoying the Safety Doc show. Um, a few things. I'm still working in a bit of a developing studio down here. Um, the primary computer, which has been down for the last two weeks, is sitting over here to my right the new computer I have seen it's completely solid state uh, just incredible machine which will be arriving here in a few days and then hooked into my main system which has multiple monitors and um, my Yeti microphone and, and all the other accessories and all my video and audio software but I don't have it right now so what we're doing is again our trusty friend the camcorder and then I will work this into a um, safety doc show it'll be number nine and then we'll kind of take it from there hopefully have our new setup before too long uh, but you know kind of doing it like the pioneers used to do it so and I remember my parents had a, had a camcorder that probably came in a suitcase and you know big thing up on your shoulders so we don't have it too bad here but uh, again welcome to the safety doc show my name is David you can go to www.safetyphd.com safetyphd.com learn more about me and learn more about this show you can also find previous shows uh, there'll be a link to SoundCloud so you can download those and listen to the mp3s anytime great to download uh, previous previous episodes put them on a thumb drive listen to them in the car um, or just when you're relaxing if you want to listen go for it and plus the shows are also on YouTube just go for my name or the safety doc channel and you will find those so you get to see me right now uh, but again many ways to get your fix of safety doc show so today we are going to talk about the lessons of lore manhattan which is actually the first book which i will be publishing with roman and littlefield that's my very first book contract so i am down here uh, i do have the fireplace going behind me and today uh, is one of the warmer days outside i believe it's about 30 and tomorrow we're looking uh, at a high around 11 and then I think the next day around 8. So um, it does get very cold down here in the studio when temperatures drop. So uh, that is why we are doing the recording today. A um, few anecdotes. One is uh, I, I, I get a kick. I, I really like watching some of the early uh, music videos. And I... When I remember watching MTV the moment it was live. My friend Kyle 
had a a big satellite dish. I mean, those things used to be you know like six foot across or eight foot. And and I was out at his house, and, and his sister was totally a like a punk rocker type. And uh, I I was I remember that was she was waiting for it to come on, and all of a sudden, boom! It came on, and and the first video they played was. Uh, Let's see, video killed the, the radio star. But I remember watching MTV the moment, the moment it came on the air. So, um, but <laughs> I'm watching some of these videos. So I, I really like the song uh, Mr. Roboto by Styx. Well, come on. I mean, who doesn't? 1983, double origamo or origato or whatever, Mr. Roboto. But, uh, but anyway, you watch the video to it. And it is it is incredibly low budget. <laughs> Today it's embarrassing for as big as hit a hit as that was. And Sticks was pretty big back then, by the way. But they do this this video, and it's it's all done, you know, pretty much in in black and white, and very poor lighting. And then, so here's how I'm imagining this this video turns out. So you'd have to go online, Google it, Sticks, Mr. Roboto video millions of, of views of it but uh you know the the producer whatever said here's the deal we have the studio but only only like for the next couple hours and uh we have no money for wardrobe but we do have some extra jumpsuits that uh the custodial crew has has loaned us so you have those we've got some uh, halloween mask here uh the kind of plastic type that you know goes on with the rubber band thing kind of goofy things you can use those uh, and we do have like a 15 second clip that George Lucas gave us from Star Wars that they shot outside that really looks space oriented spacey but has no link to the movie so they cut it he just gave it to us and we can use it for anything so we're gonna work it into the video although it's gonna be connected to nothing we're gonna throw it in, and uh, so anyway, this and by the way, like you got to be really kind of cautious with the lights because uh, you know it costs a lot to run these things. We only have a budget of you know like twenty bucks for electricity. So you know, at no time do they run full electricity. The, the, the lights are like half on or half. I mean, it, it's so ridiculous to see this this video and and just the choreography of it. And looking back, I mean, Sticks has got to be like, come on, come on. I mean, it was Mr. Roboto. But another one is uh, Rhinestone Cowboy. It's a country song, Glenn Campbell, 1975. So parts of it are a little bit cool. Glenn's got his huge belt buckle on, and he's walking down the side of a road, and then he leans up against a tree, and he's doing a little bit of lip syncing, and a couple scenes like that. which, But... For Rhinestone Cowboy, they, they show then he's all dressed in white, he's on a white horse, but he's like in a stable, like just out at somebody's farm or whatever, and they show him kind of riding around. And the, and the camera's not really following him. He's riding around, and, and, and he's not covered in rhinestones. It's not like he's going down the street like in rhinestones or something like that, which might fit the movie that this came from, Rhinestone Cowboy, but... So just a goofy thing too, like they, they had to get done, I mean that video was, 
they had to look at the weather and say, okay, the five-day forecast is rain after today, so we're shooting this thing no matter what. It doesn't matter, you know, we're, it's, it's start, we're starting, you're going to walk, Glenn, when you're done walking, you're going to get on the horse, we're going to do it all at once, and an hour will be done, call it good. Um, so I, I'm just like, hey, just get a kick out of watching these, and now... The, you know, the millions of dollars in the graphics that go into videos and things like that. You, you know, even um, when they had that song, uh, Aha, Take On Me, and it was kind of the sketch drawing and, and all of that stuff, which was right around the Sticks era, you know, too. Uh, but I, I just get, I, I get a kick out of that. You know, kind of my generation of the songs I really got into. And, and uh, it was new back then. I mean, people weren't making really, you know, music videos, so they're 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 either they're putting money into it or they're just saying, you know, go out and do something. And uh, so yeah, my computer update build is being finished. It's interesting because the um, the computer guy was telling me he said most of the new machines like. They're not building them with USB ports or CD drives and stuff like that. And he said, really, probably in a year or two, it's going to be hard to get those things on a machine because everything's going to be saved to the web. You're going to have all solid-state drives and stuff like that. So if there was a time to kind of do this massive upgrade of the studio here, now is the time to do it because I still have... I want to be able to use my thumb drives and stuff like that. So just interesting because you wonder, like, what do you save stuff to? if you want to archive it. Like, I have a lot of our photos saved to CD, which, you know, it's archival life of 100 years. Well, you know, 100 years from now, <laughs> who's going to have a CD player? I mean, I don't have a VHS player anymore, uh, or, you know, cassette. Granted, you know, digitally it shouldn't degrade, but it's going to be one of those perpetual things where you're always going to, to be fighting to stay current with whatever format, you know, is... is still accessible so um and something strange so for years i never checked the tire pressure on any vehicle that i owned and now you know the the vehicles come with the tire pressure gauges so in winter in wisconsin the tire pressures drop because the air condenses in the tires and then you know a little light comes on tire pressure so get out check the tire pressure sure enough you know got to get out the pump, add some air. Um, and I, I just have now, I've gotten in this habit where like I, I do it on a pretty regular basis. Like I'll take a, one of the cars out, go around and, and it has the little digital thing inside too, but I actually take the, I, you know, my, my measuring, uh, my air pressure or air pressure gauge, I'll, I'll measure it and then I'll, I'll, you know, pump and uh, but something I never did before, you know, so I'm like, I'm 45, like for 44 years of life, well, I wasn't driving, obviously, until I was 16, but like, it could it'd care less, and it didn't matter, I never had a problem with it. I, in college, I'd be, my car would sit outside the apartment for a week at a time, and I wouldn't drive it, like, it'd be 10 degrees below zero, and, I, you know, you just went. Um, and I remember, too, I had I had one car, which was kind of my, like, race sports car type thing. And it had racing tires, Kelly raised white letter racing tires, which looked pretty mean. But you had to keep like the pressure really low on these tires. Um, that was just the way that they they were made, so they had the the grip. Um, 
So at most you get like 30,000 miles out of these things and then they'd be worn out. That would be it. You know, nothing like today. So, you know, you put them on and a year later, boom, you know, you got to take them off. But, uh, but yeah, so I've kind of become this tire pressure junkie. You know, it's, it's my, it's my thing. And I actually keep a pump in one of the cars. If, if we go on vacation anywhere, you know, I just throw a pump in just, just because I, I've just become that guy. So, um, let's talk about lessons of lower Manhattan. So again, before we get started, this is an hour-long show, and my name is David. I do have a PhD from UW-Madison, um, and I also want to give an appreciation to Sprigio, www.sprigeo.com. Sprigio.com, uh, national leader in bullying, online bullying reporting software, and then also threat reporting software. And now doing so much more with professional development in school character, uh, school character development, school culture development. Joe out of Santa Barbara is the CEO of the company. I've known Joe for a number of years. The company continues to grow. Just uh, very, very important to have a, a, a reliable um, threat input system and harassment input system in a school setting. And Joe provides that through his company, Sprigio. So thank you for uh, the sponsorship of Sprigio, the support of Sprigio in this show, and also uh, appreciation to the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, uh, John, and my uh, programming uh, in the Monday through Thursday, 9 p.m., January 30th, moving up to 1 o'clock daily on the 405 Media with a tremendous uh, roster of shows. So I appreciate being part of the 405 Media and very, very much looks like it, it, at the time I'm recording this, it hasn't been confirmed, uh, that I might be um, syndicated onto 42 AM and FM radio stations across the country, uh, including a few here in Wisconsin. And that would really be, uh, be terrific for the Safety Doc show to reach uh, a greater audience. So I'm excited to have that prospect, although that's still kind of in the negotiation phase of, of having that. But uh, we could be talking about that, you know, within a show or two of having this, then, um, this show in addition to the 405 media and being on YouTube and being on SoundCloud but also them being syndicated out to uh, 42 and then growing AM, FM shows uh, weekly. So it's good news. Hey, I think we're delivering great content here on the Safety Doc Show. I worked today um, in lining up an interview that we're going to be doing in a few weeks, and uh, that is um, going to be with a former NFL player, and he's going to talk about personal safety specific to being um, once once you reach a level of um, high profile <clears throat> excuse me so and one of the things that I learned today just in, in setting this thing up was that his family uh, was advised immediately to take out a substantial um, umbrella liability policy because 
that the family becomes a target then for, you know, any type of lawsuit because they, they know, you know, there's, there's money there. So, uh, but he has interesting things to share. We're, we're kind of working out some of the logistics. I'd like to do that via Skype and record it. I'm not sure it's going to work out for him that way. Uh, we might have to do it in a different way. Uh, he does not live in Wisconsin, so uh, he lives in uh, southern part of the U.S. where it's nice and nice and warm, you know, with his family. But uh, that's going to be a, a, a really interesting interview uh, because, it, again, it's, it's all of these things that no one really talks about or mentions, especially, you know, when you have that high profile that you assume as a professional athlete, but think about it, I mean, it, it could be if um, through a job promotion, uh, it could be through, you know, if there was a known inheritance or some legal settlement or whatever, I mean, any one, I mean, winning the lottery is a little bit out there, okay? I knew someone that won the lottery once, though, um, but, uh, you know, things things like that, just understanding if, you're, if your profile, you know, changes in, in how you need to be aware then of, of uh, hyper awareness of your own of your own safety. So lessons of Lower Manhattan. My my book is 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 titled A Contrarian's Perspective of the Unconventional Exceptional Rescue of Five Hundred Thousand People. I have an article of this same nature that's coming out in School Business Affairs magazine in February, and then um, you know my my book hopefully uh, will be coming out later this this year. Um, so lessons of lower Manhattan. So September 11, 2001, we obviously know, um, you know what had happened with the Twin Towers. Uh, if you go on to YouTube, there's a documentary, it's 11 minutes long, by um, Eddie Rosenstein, narrated by Tom Hanks, and it's called Boat Lift. And it basically talks uh, it, it talks about how 500,000 people were evacuated off of Lower Manhattan in a matter of nine hours, safely evacuated off by boat, by boat. Closed, you know, the, the bridges were closed off, everything was closed off. So it, this was by boat. Just a tremendous rescue that if you look at it on the surface, this shouldn't have happened. Like you should not have been able to have uh, the coordination of this this rescue and the efficiency of this rescue happen um, without any type of pre-planning whatsoever. It goes against conventional thought, it goes against conventional theory, it goes against the way that we typically prepare for significant disasters and significant crisis um, events. And that's where I try to, to bring in those discussions too when I work uh, with especially schools on safety preparedness is do not lock yourself so tightly into a response mode that you cannot adjust to a very dynamic context and situation and um, everyone is going to bring something different to that table and being able to utilize the skills of the people that are present at that time. So let's talk a little bit more about um, about what happened on, on September 11th. So, 500,000 people, they're, they're lining up, um, they're trying to get off of, of, uh, of the island. You know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, 20, 30, 40 people deep. And 
Um, the Coast Guard has a number of boats, but, but not very many, and they're trying to get the people off of the island, but there's no way the Coast Guard's going to be able to do this with just a handful of boats and, and staff. Um, so what happens then is it was um, the U.S. Uh, Coast Guard Admiral James Loy, and very significant. Okay, so he is in, he's in command when this is happening, of, of the Coast Guard, of the harbor. And he quickly realizes there's no way we're going to be able to get these people off of the, uh, off of lower Manhattan um, if, we, if we do the conventional approach of, of, you know, just using the handful of boats that we have. And, and I mean, it would take forever. And so what he does, this is an act of administrative courage. And this this is this is a career defining moment for him. He, you, he could have instantly, this could have ended up with him being fired. Um, you know, there was significant risk with this. What if there was a, another inbound attack, and then they were aiming at the harbor? What if? But I mean, he took his discretion, made this professional decision, and put out an all call. And and. Um, as, as Loy said, and I'm quoting this, the real reality after I put out some direction was in the hands of commanders and captains who were the respective captains of the port and did what they needed to do, including all the stuff I told them to do and whatever else they felt was appropriate. So, again, this all call goes out, and they have people who have tour boats, who have fishing boats, recreation boats, whatever. And he said, if you have a boat and you can get down here to the harbor and help evacuate people from lower Manhattan, do it. And that was it. And basically knowing, trusting that the few Coast Guard people that were in place and just that people would, would know how to assemble themselves and to put together a rescue. Now you'd think it'd be chaos. It's like there's totally no way this would work. Like, you know, how you know, boats running into each other, not knowing, you know, who's taking who, you know, where. But um, I'll never forget from the video, from the boatlift video, there's actually a segment where they, they interview um, one of the either boat captains or one of one of the staff on one of, a boat that was doing a rescue. It wasn't a Coast Guard boat. And, and this guy was talking about how, you know, like Wall Street uh, bankers, you know, covered in, in soot and, and stuff. And they were overhead passing this, this lady who was blind and her guide dog also overhead onto a boat. And they would take sheets and they would write things like Hoboken as like a destination and then just, you know, like tie those up on the, up on the boat so you could, you could see. Um, and it was so incredible how they they did this rescue. So a few things is no protocol to follow. Like the people that were coming into that harbor, you can argue everyone has some kind of training. I mean, if you're a boat captain, well, yeah, you do have some kind of training, but you have, there's but there was no interagency training, no interagency drill with this at all. So um, it's just like saying, you know, everybody has some type of first aid training or maybe CPR or whatever. I mean, yes, you have some basic skills, um, but some of these people, um, you know, obviously that no one had encountered any, anything like this. And again, you have a situation where you're entering into it and you don't, it's still going on. You don't know if there's going to be another attack. 
if there's the harbor's mind, whatever there, whatever is going on, how many people really, you know, there are, what else is happening across, you know, the, the whole country. So no protocols, no flip charts, no flow charts, but they considered these, these um, you know, you have different, different craft coming in, you know, so, you know, small craft, big craft, different types of, of motors, different level of trained responders, you know, again, some people who, the, the captains might have, owned that, that they might only know that harbor from giving tours, you know, that's, that's it, that's the only way that they know it, you know, you might have other people that have, you know, just fishing background or whatever, um, and, Imagine though, like this, this, this works because of administrative courage, because of Loy saying, putting that all call out over the radio, saying, if you can get down here and help us, help us. That's something that is so important today to personal safety and to, to safety response during a crisis situation is the courage to do what Loy did. Because other people would not have had that courage. They would have had the thought going through their mind of, if I make this decision and this doesn't turn out well, but you know, if if this is a, a big mess, if some people are injured or some people die or there's another attack, you know, then I'm gonna I'm liable for that. Um, I could, you know, people start to weigh their own career and things like that, um, and that happens in organizations, and it ends up then in. In, in action, and in action is, is absolutely a horrible thing, especially during a, a substantial dynamic event like this. But Loy stood up and made the call, which could have ended his career, but it, it didn't. It saved uh, countless lives and, and evacuated 500,000 people in nine hours. Something like that had never been done before. So, you know, why? Why did that happen? Responders, one, responders were given permission to exercise discretion. So people were, you know, Loy had their back first of all. If you're responding, you know, you're responding because of Loy, and Loy believed that the Coast Guard and ultimately the military, the government, people would have his back. So people felt comfortable using their professional discretion. And people are going to typically make the right choices. I mean, that's too. I mean, we're People are we're, we're smart. You and I, we, we're going to make the correct decisions in in the moment. Um, responders were not attempting to make res make responses that aligned to scripts. It wasn't like they had to meet first and say, "Okay, like you know, we're going to do things like this way," or like they had to, you know. Well, everyone had to go to a certain flip chart that, that would have just been issued or something like that or wait for like specific orders to come out from like one central location. Didn't have to deal with any of that because again, you then would try to be matching that document to a dynamic context in a dynamic situation which wouldn't have worked. So get rid of it. It didn't matter in, um, it, 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 it it would have been much more harmful had they tried to match to some scripts in this case because it would have taken more time. And again, uh, you, you wouldn't have had a fluid response had you done that. Responders were effective in sense-making in the midst of evolving in uncertain contexts and situations. So people could see what was going on and they could also make decisions um, you know, in the, the moment on areas that were best to load, areas were best to drop off, 
um, discovering, hey, sheets are great, you know, they're white in a can of spray paint, and, and you know, we can start passing that word around of, you know, how to indicate where we're sending some of the, the, the boats. Um, so, yeah, sense making in, in the moment, uh, being able to adjust, looking at where the other boats are lining up, lining your boat up accordingly. Um, again, I'm bringing this point home hard because we get into these interagency drills with whether it be, and it usually is intruder act, active shooter type things, um, and trying to play out how we think it's all going to go down and all of that. Uh, and to me, it's better to do that more in a tabletop type discussion and then in the moment to have people do what they need to do to match that context and situation. Imagine trying to get everybody together to do this as a simulation. I mean, just, just imagine that. So I think what this proves to some extent is the sense making or acting in the moment of how valuable uh, that is and just how good we really are able to do that. Um, and there's, there's a counter theory to that, which is distributed leadership, which basically, um, you know, would mean that people have learned through, you know, flip charts or training or things like that. And then, and then through those type of things can make some adjustments during a situation like this, but, uh, that leadership is distributed throughout the organization and, you see, and the military has that very well kind of laid out. Schools, I argue, had that years ago. There's been so much turnover, administrators last, principals two, three years, that's it. Statistically, we know that's it, then they leave. Um, teachers aren't staying around as long. I don't think we have distributed leadership. I think what we have um, is we have sense-making right now, people reacting to context and situation, which personally I think is better. I think we should be teaching people how to do that, how to recognize situations, how to recognize what their options are, how they're going through their heuristics or their, their decision making. Because um, that's one thing obviously that was wide open on 9-11 with the boat rescue is there wasn't just one way to do that. There was an open number of heuristics on, on different options of how they were going to do that rescue, the way that they brought boats in, in the way that they loaded people, and the way that they, you know, used signage and communicated and things like that. So again, I think this whole thing of distributed leadership, which gets talked about and touted in books of, um, you know, that we will empower people, we'll have systems in place, we'll have artifacts in place, like the flow charts, and, and people will have memory knowledge from demonstrating things and whatever. Uh, I'd rather go with sense-making, teaching uh, sense-making, meaning knowing what is happening in the moment and reacting in to that changing context and changing situation. And believe it or not, a lot of people aren't good at sense-making. A lot of people do not recognize these changes from what quote-unquote is, is the norm. Um, I, I, think that's a skill, especially especially in schools, we just don't teach uh, a lot. I mean, we talk about like an active shooter drill. Um, that It's not going to happen the way that you're going to, to drill for it. I mean, it just is not. And also, you're not going to have, you drill that day and you feel great, 
and it's not going to be the same set of responders coming the next day. It could be people who've never set foot in that school before. Um, and again, on a different note, most of those situations end by the time uh, most of, you know, after the first few police are on the scene, it's usually over, you know, about eight minutes. But, um, but again, my book on Lessons of Lower Manhattan really talks about how from a theoretical, excuse me, hiccups, theoretical model, it shouldn't have been possible. Like, you shouldn't have been possible to, to get these, all of these boat captains with all of their different experiences and different crafts and, and everything that was going on and to coordinate this massive rescue organically and just have it develop and people recognize the context and where they fit into it. Um, it, it shouldn't have happened. Like, how does that happen? That was a recipe for disaster, but yet it happens. And we know that these things will happen. We have to give credit to our intelligence. What I'm saying, too, is like, it doesn't mean, you know, we don't do things like fire drills, and we don't talk about, you know, like, well, there's certain things definitely with an active shooter. I mean, it makes sense to, to first assess where you're at, try to get yourself either away from that uh, if you know where the shooter is or behind a secured area, you know, there are certain principles that go into play. It's just, you know, it's the same thing with a, you know, with, with boats. You know, I'm sure that there's principles of we want to make sure that we balance out the weight when we bring, you know, people into a boat. So when we pull up and, I mean, there's going to be things like that that'll, that'll come into play. Um, so Loy definitely used the, the administrative, um, administrative courage and let's talk a little bit more uh, so throughout history the ability to exercise discretion in the best interest of others appears strongest in situations in which the person making the decision feels that the greater organization will vindicate the decision so again with Loy he believed that making that decision making that decision to do the all call um, was one, the right thing to do, and two, the organization, being the, the Coast Guard, the military, the government would, would back him. We also kind of see that, and I have the book somewhere around here, I don't know where it is, but, um, you know, in, in Captain Sully uh, and the miracle on the Hudson, uh, and that wasn't necessarily, I mean, he felt, I mean, he was following what he under, understood and perceived to be procedure at the time, and, and felt, you know, that the airline would have his back, which, they kind of did, kind of didn't, you know, they, they questioned and, you know, did you really need, have to make the water landing? And, and of course, I mean, if you're the, if you're the captain and that's the conclusion that you come to, you know, it, and to be second guessed like that afterwards, after you've done that and have done it successfully, had to be very, um, I don't know if demoralizing would be the word because I don't see, see him as a demoralized person at all, but um, I I think that reflects more on an organization, um, an organization f failure with the airline of, of looking and saying, hey, our captain did what what we wanted him to do. He exercised professional discretion in the best interest uh, that he judged with the context in the situation. You'll never know that context and situation. People think they do, and I I went through this a lot in my research. Um, when I was at UW-Madison, especially on the military side, military high-stakes decision-making, the military strategist would say, no matter what we think is going to play out on that battlefield, it doesn't play out the way that 
we think it's going to happen, you know. So the best models that we have, it doesn't happen that way. And I mean, there's been, there's millions and millions of dollars have gone into to those types of studies. Um, in the 1980s, there was a, a study, and I think I might have talked about this one before, but I'll, I'll just quickly hit on it again. The military was trying to figure out, um, you know, how their commanders go about making decisions, or basically um, going, you know, going through your uh, your hierarchy of, of options, and you need to do that. You just can't cut to like what you, you got to try to keep as many options on the on the table as you can um, through every point. But uh, so so they they hired this researcher uh, Klein, and, and he had a bunch of grad students, and they stayed in firehouses and would go out with firefighters on calls, and then they would ask the firefighters like why you made certain decisions, and and you know a lot of it was it was just tacit knowledge. I mean they they recognized kind of the the sense of what was happening. It, for example, a soft roof. You know that was that's one example recognizing when a roof was quote-unquote soft and when to get off of it. So soft, kind of in a tactile feel, but not necessarily. Like just knowing that there was a certain time to get off of a roof when it wasn't going to be safe anymore. So not actually having to deal with saying, well, if you felt the roof, was it actually soft? Well, no, not necessarily. But, you know, we recognized that it was time to get off. Well, how? We just did. We, we knew. So there's more to it than that, but it's hard to get that tacit knowledge, those words to come out to match that. Um, so, I mean, that struggle continues uh, to, the, to this day. And I think, you know, I, I think it's okay to just say there's tacit knowledge that exists and let's go with that. And let's just talk about sense-making and recognizing situations that, are, that start to vary. I did inter interview um, Steve Kastner out of NASA who talked about working with pilots. And these are like, you know, your, your top your top pilots and he said once you change the simulation a little bit uh, even for the most experienced the best pilots a little change that they weren't anticipating because you know most of them would would it's it's like a fire drill fire drill happens you go down the hallway and you go out whatever well what if the hallway's blocked well that's never happened before you know like at a school you might have gone there five years it's never happened hallways blocked well now what do you do he would do some minor little tweaks, you know, he and his group, and the pilots would pause, and they, they wouldn't, first of all, it, it, it didn't fit the narrative they expected, so they would pause, and then they would struggle, some of them, with making decisions on what to do. Um, and sometimes those wouldn't turn out the best. Now, again, this is all simulator-type stuff, but they would interview some of the pilots later who just said, frankly, I became confused by... The, the context and situation changed versus what I anticipated. I just, I, and it, it, cha it changed before I really recognized that it had changed. So again, this whole thing of sense-making, I'm coming back to, um, you know, I, and I think what was happening on September 11th is heightened awareness too, and, and you know, with some, you know, when Loy gave out that and trusted the people were going to have that, adrenaline, that awareness kick in, and again, captains innately, you know, have leadership roles over their boats, but then that they would be able to cohesively work together. Um, it, it's still, it's fascinating. So when the book comes out, buy it!
read it. It's going to be really good. I, I've got some really great, great stuff, uh, great stuff for that. You know, back in um, this isn't the only time that this has happened. Like if it's a this this has happened in other instances. Um, so I want to talk about um, April twenty ninth and thirtieth, nineteen seventy five. Uh, military evacuation of South Vietnamese citizens and American personnel from Saigon. So this, this happened over two days. It was codenamed Operation Frequent Wind. So it was the fall of Saigon. And the, the, um, the Navy was, was e evacuating um, Saigon. So, the, so they're doing this, you know, obviously by, by boat. Some of it's by chopper, but most of it's by boat. And what they, what they realize very quickly with the, the rescue boats they have available is the boats are getting overwhelmed. Like there's more people coming on the boats than the boats can handle. Boats are actually starting to lose buoyancy. They don't have any room left on them. So what the commanders did, or the captains, the, the captains, the boat captains, um, they said, we need to make more room on deck, and we need to get more weight off of our boats. So they said, push the helicopters over the sides. Push them over the sides. Helicopters into the sea. Boom. Over the sides. And there's pictures of this. You can go online and Google it. Operation Frequent Wind, um, 1975 Saigon. And so imagine that, you know, you're making that decision that there's... <laughs> There's going to be repercussions, but again, you have made a decision that you know somebody has your back. You're doing it in the best interest. You recognize you are close to that context, that situation, your boots on the ground. You do what has to be done in that moment to save lives. I'll, I'll just take a little step back. There was a time, it was, it was at Gettysburg, um, at the conclusion of the Gettysburg Battle, so Lincoln got word of, of what had happened that Meade had, had defeated Lee, per se. And then, you know, he tells Meade, you know, pursue Lee, like, keep going after him. And so Lincoln, you know, is hundreds of miles away. He's, he's not at the battle scene. He doesn't know what's going on there, the, the toll that that's taken on both sides, and the fact also that the Union Army's been, been worn down. And Meade basically was like, nope, you know, I'm here, you're not, we're not chasing Lee. That's not happening. So, um, because, you know, we, we, we are, we need to, to regather ourselves and, and our supplies and it's not at our best advantage. While, you know, Lincoln's trying to put an end, you know, we'll just chase Lee into whatever. And Meade was on the ground. He's, he's there. He's it boots on the ground. And that's something with Operation Frequent Wind also, boots on the ground, uh, that the captains are saying, you know, do this. And they're also telling the chopper pilots, uh, rescue people, you know, drop them off, and then take your planes and ditch them out in, in the sea. Imagine that. I mean, millions and millions of dollars. I mean, just, just equipment just, just gone, being pushed over. Um, here's, here's what happened. So over 7,000 people were evacuated. The commanders that made the decisions to plunge the aircraft were not reprimanded. In fact, all personnel 
who participated in Operation Frequent Wind were authorized the Vietnam Service Medal, the Vietnam Cross of Gallantry, and the Humanitarian Service Medal. All that were involved. Amazing. And the right thing to do. The right thing to do. Because again, it was sense-making. It was in the moment sense-making. It was administrative courage. It wasn't some distributed leadership thing where the captains are getting back and saying, well, if we do this, this will maintain this buoyancy, or if we do this or whatever, or someone's saying, we can't push this over the side. Imagine uh, the trouble that we're going to get in. This will be the end of our careers and our pensions, and, you know, we'll be put, you know, in the stockade for doing this, or court-martialed. But there, it wasn't that. There was administrative courage. And my question to you right now is, is that administrative courage still there? We saw it on September 11th. So we do have a recent example, large scale, of it. And 1975 with frequent wind, but I'm asking, is it still there today? And is it something that has been so proven through these events? And there's one more event. That was, that I want to talk, that's just a short one here, but Dunkirk, France, in 1940, this took about two weeks, 700 private boats helped um, 338,000 British and French soldiers that were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk helped them escape. So again, a massive rescue, now you're talking over two weeks, and again, that was, we're not talking about a military type rescue as much as a, a somewhat military directed but a civilian executed um, evacuation excuse me hiccups um, so again we have examples of administrative uh, of courage of people who have not trained previously who really um, you know also then are faced with narratives that are very different than what they're expecting. Again, imagine that you're in Operation uh, Frequent Wind and, and you're, you're the captain of, a, of, of one of the boats, you know, and you're having millions of dollars of helicopters pushed over the side. Um, I'm sure that's not what you thought about when you got up, you know, that morning and had your breakfast, um, but still, People can make these decisions. We have this ability. What we need to do is we need to teach decision-making. What we're teaching right now in schools, for example, is, is this high-drama high reaction um, stuff, and it's very programmed. It's very programmed if it comes to like an intruder-active shooter situation. And then we even get into some things which I think are way over the top and inappropriate such as training on, you know, how to disarm uh, armed, you know, gunmen and things like that. When w we know statistically, empirically, you're better off to either, first of all, take the second or two to evaluate what's around you, which nobody has in their plans. It's usually um, run, hide, fight, or, you know, there's different things. But the first step should always be that you, you take that one or to two seconds to evaluate your context. Because you might have a solution available to you um, that, you know, there, there could be a, a door five feet away that unless you're evaluating your context, you're not going to, to realize that that option is available to you. 
but evaluate the context. Um, so let me talk about um, practice implications. So give give staff permission to make decisions and use discretion. This this if it doesn't matter where you're working, um, give staff that discretion in crisis situations. Whether I mean it could be a boiler that it explodes in a building. Um, it could be an earthquake. It could you know a, a tornado. Whatever it is. I mean, give staff professional discretion to act in the best interest of themselves and their coworkers, or if it's school, working in the best interest of children. Best interest in the best interest. There was. Uh, uh, there were 60 research uh, studies done on the term best interest in legal cases, and it found that the term best interest, which is uh, in educational law, um, was defined differently in all 60 cases. But if you were acting in the best interest, if you genuinely were doing what you felt was in the best interest to preserve um, you know, your well-being and the well-being uh, or of others and or of others, um, then you, that was almost always vindicated, acting in the best interest, which is going to be context and situation specific. No one is going to be able to recreate that and tell you this is what you should have done because they're not going to be able to recreate, understand what that context and situation is and what you felt at that time and what you, what you had perceived and also what you're, you know, you're basing things upon what knowledge you have of the situation, what previous knowledge experiences you have so this whole thing of, you know, where we second guess of how things should have happened, that's just what it is because you don't have context or situation. As a leader, as a coworker, whatever, stand behind the people making the courageous decisions. Um, recognize when distributed leadership isn't an option, meaning uh, at 9-11, um, the boat lift, distributed leadership trying to break out some you know, 300-page manual on how to do a rescue of 500,000 people or try to get in contact with people to whip up some kind of contingency plan on how to do that, that, that didn't make sense. Or like, okay, captains, before you go and rescue, we're all going to meet over here and we're going to give you like this quick 15-minute lowdown on, on what we're expecting and what we're going to do. No, it doesn't work that way and it shouldn't. Don't build that into your systems. Don't build it into your systems. If it's a nuclear power plant, yeah, then you have systems like that, okay? Then that's built in. But in these dynamic situations, uh, it, it, it just, it, it, it's, a, it's a roadblock. It's a barrier. It's unnecessary. I look at these flip charts on school walls, a lot of them completely irrelevant. Uh, you know, it makes, there's some that, you know, if you have a tornado that's coming, one is you're not going to get ambushed by a tornado. You're going to know the tornado's on the way. You're going to know where your, your shelters and your areas and things like that, so you can have those, that reference, which is good. But like an active shooter, that's a dynamic situation. Um, if a, you know, let's say a, a boiler explodes or there's a, you know, an explosion in a room, a chemistry lab or something, that's a dynamic situation you're going to have to analyze and respond to. All right, I have 51 minutes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run us up a little over 60. If I have to trim it back, that's fine. Uh, okay, so I I have found similar crossroads where people needed to draw from their experience and at the same time be open to doing new things. 
So again, we talk, let's talk about the boat captains, their experience. They might have been out in rough waters, um, they, you know, navigating. They might have had times when the harbor was very busy, um, you know, for, for events or even if there were dignitaries, you know, in the area, things like that. So you need to, to draw off your experiences, but also be open to doing new things. New things, that's the thing, new things. This would be vital during an unfolding safety situation to ensure that contextual factors are continually processed and individuals' responses are adjusted to match their environment, which the sailors in Lower Manhattan did so successfully on September 11th, 2001. The underlying question, so we talked about lessons of Lower Manhattan, the underlying question is whether we should continue to prepare people to execute rote actions in situations we expect to be unpredictable, chaotic, and dynamic? Okay, that's the question. Uh, again, the underlying question is whether we should continue to prepare people to execute rote actions in situations we expect to be unpredictable, chaotic, and dynamic. Note that this is the standard manner in which educational leaders prepare staff and students for high stakes school safety situations, and I'm guessing it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of similarity in how corporations, um, businesses plan for crisis events and crisis response also. Um, again, I'm going to go back to, to Commander or Admiral Loy's words. Admiral Loy, head of the Coast Guard um, in uh, Man. Hatton Harbor uh, on 9-11. So Loy, his own words, the real reality after I put out some direction was in the hands of commanders and captains who were the respective captains of the port and did what they needed to do. So the people who are getting that call, hearing that call come over the radio, whether you, know, you have your fishing boat or you have your tour boat or your Navy uh, or Coast Guard, whatever craft that you have available. So they were to, they were to do what they needed to do, including all the stuff I told them to do and whatever else they felt was appropriate. I actually worked with a district once on a safety plan and in a consulting role and the district, the, the teachers around the table one very distinct language when they could act on their own to defend themselves against an intruder. They wanted it in, in absolute definite terms, uh, definite statements saying, okay, under this situation, it's okay for you to defend yourself, defend your life. Uh, because they felt like if they were to do that without the absolute um, blessing of administration and of this this protocol then they could be held liable and that that discussion took hours took hours and what you cannot get caught up in that you cannot let yourself get caught up in that you have to be able you have to enable people to be able to make the big decisions knowing that one you trust them um, in their decision making uh, two you're going to, they're going to be uh, backed. So that you're going to back the decision because they're making that decision based on the context 
in the situation and they're making it in the best interest of bringing the best resolution to that situation. Okay everyone, guess what? This is about our fourth outro for this episode of the Safety Dock. I had to actually plug the camcorder in to the power charger because I had run the battery to zero and it wasn't recharging very quickly. So every time I tried to do my little outro here, it would not make it through. So hopefully we are set this time. Um, a few things. One is, again, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Safety Doc show. And I appreciate that you are an inquisitive, intelligent audience. I know um, that my listeners definitely want to um, want to learn new information, want to be entertained, um, want to have some facts that it might help them or help someone else in a time of crisis. And I think overall, just to have a, a pure reflection of what's going on out there for safety, because it's not nearly as bad as what the mainstream media would tell us. We need to be vigilant. And, and we need to be very aware. But also, you know, let me help you work through that, that rhetoric. That's, that's what I do. So um, I'm, very, uh, I'm very much going to do something I've never done here before on the safety dock, and that's to do a special outro, just because I've messed this one up so bad. Uh, this guitar belonged to my godfather. He has since passed, wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, I do not know how to play guitar, but we are going to make up a quick outro here for the Safety Doc Show. So I'm going to pretend I know what I'm doing, so this at least might look pretty cool if we do clip it into some kind of screenshot or whatever. Uh, for those of you at home listening, no, nothing wrong with your speakers. It is me trying to play this acoustic guitar, but here we go. Oh, it's a safety dock show, safety dock show, with your good friend and your good host, your good host, David, he's got a PhD, that might mean a lot to you, means someone to me, but it means I know this stuff, I'm willing to share it with you, cause guess what, everybody? That's what the safety doc is here to do. Hey, hey, hey. Imagine if this actually, you know, had some rhythm. It wouldn't be too bad. Safety doc, safety doc, to an end of the safety doc. Every day you can stream live on SoundCloud. You can go and find me. You can find me on YouTube. You can go to www.safetyphd.com. Safetyphd.com. Read my blog. Hey, it's not a slog. It's the best I could do, okay? Uh, read my blog. You can also get some nice information about safety. Get some updated things. Whatever you can find there. But you're probably not going to find coupons or anything like that. So, safety doc, safety doc, safety doc, show safety doc, 405 Media, and guess what, friends? There could be more shows before the end, meaning EMF.
FM stations heading my way. We'll see, it could happen soon, maybe even in a day. Who knows? But thanks again, everybody. Hey, stay safe and take care of yourselves.